Welcome to Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney. Our program is about turning the negative challenges in your life into positive experiences. If you feel that life's issues are bogging you down and there is no hope in sight, you've arrived where you need to be. We'll discuss the challenges and offer solutions that you can start working on immediately. Now, here is your host, Jeanette Abney. Good morning, and welcome to Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney and special guest, Ian Adamson, founder of Being True to Your Recovery Coaching. First, giving honor to my Heavenly Father and my grandson again for his magnificent screaming that woke me up this morning, and believe me, I was not ready to open my eyes, but for myself and my dogs, we tried to ignore him, but again, he won. Today's topic is entitled... How to Help My Loved Ones Stay Sober. And at this time, I would like to introduce my special guest, Deanne Adamson. Deanne? Hi, Jeanette. Hello. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. We're going to have a great show. Thank you. Thank you. Like I said, today, I don't know what's going on, but um, my computer crashed. I'm on the road by McDonald's in Orange County. It's hot. But you know what? We're going to make it work. So, <laughs> topic, like I said, we're going to talk about how to help my loved ones stay sober. And as we know, addiction is one of those things that's very, 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 it's, it's one of those taboo subjects. And a lot of times we like to say, you know, not in my home or, you know, trying to understand what is addiction about and what addiction does not only to, do not only to the person, but to the family as a whole. So I want you to share with your listeners, our listeners, tell us who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Deanne Adamson. I am the owner and president of Being True to You. Being True to You is a transformational recovery coaching business. We work with uh, people and their family members through addiction. Our model consists of recovery coaching from home. We specifically specialize in pre-care and after-care. So what we do is we prepare people for change, uh, for detox, for sobriety before they check into treatment. And then we provide long-term after-care and integration support over the course of uh, three months to three years, honestly. And we work from anywhere. So we work, all of our services are over the phone. So people can uh, start um or really have a continuum of care over that longer period of time. And our focus for recovery coaching is based around self-love, uh, personal development, skill building, self-mastery, healing core wounds, of course, life purpose and goal achievement, and family recovery is very important, as well as individual recovery. So that's just a little overview of what we do. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that information. Because as many of us know, drug and alcohol addiction has become an epidemic. And it has killed many. I mean, as we look today, I woke up this morning, and I know that Bobby Brown was on television talking about his daughter and his wife, just to name a few. Talked about friends. Talked about so many people that we belong in regards to addiction and not only our own personal family members. So it is destroying our society. And many of us have also been impacted at a greater risk, also when it touches the lives of our loved ones. As we know, there are many concepts as it relates to what they call the war on drugs, but yet this battle is becoming stronger and more vicious as many lives 
are being destroyed. And what happens is for many, people minimize the problem. Some continue to find excuses. So today, our t- with our topic, we will provide insight into first understanding addiction. We will also provide practical advice to help loved ones stay sober as we explore ways to try to help them. So, Deanne, I want to first say, when we talk about addiction, and I, I hear that you say that we, you try to help individuals in regards to before they even go to treatment. What would you say is a lot of their interpretation of addiction? Because we know that addiction robs you of freedom and control. But what do you hear people say when, they, when you talk to them about addiction? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, initially when we have people come in, it's just this dire need to fix the, the surface problem. So a lot of times mm-hmm. the surface problem is the drug use, it is the family breakdown, it's the career breakdown. It's just a stream of loss that people are experiencing and they realize I've got to step in, I've got to do something now. So initially when people come to us, they're coming with the, the surface problem and wanting to find a quick you know, solution to it. So our job is to facilitate a conversation about the bigger picture, the core wound, all involved uh, influences, and starting to look at a strategy of long-term support and, and long-term success and really breaking free of the addictive mindset that wants that short-term fix. Wow. Um, it's funny that you say that in regards to the short-term fix. Because I myself, I'm a licensed therapist, and I'm also the owner of the Center for the Treatment of Addiction. And this was something that I truly did not plan on doing. It was, if somebody would have said to me, Jeanette, you're going to own and operate an outpatient counseling center, or you're going to deal with individuals that have drug and alcohol issues, I would have said, no, I'm not. I'm going to be a judge. I'm going to be a lawyer. I had other plans for my life. Because talking about addiction, I know myself. I grew up in a family where my mother believed I would rather for my kids to get drunk or high at home than to do it in the street. And we had this notion of whether a person was using versus abusing. We didn't know what that even meant. So when you start talking about addiction, how would you say that individuals, I hear you talking about people's pain and dealing with the surface issue, where would you say that it kind of, where, where did it start? How do we even... For those individuals that are still struggling with whether they have a problem, because just even talking about the term addiction, how do you even coach them to, to getting help? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, you know, and I think really the premise of our show is, is what do you do if you have addiction in the household? You know, where do we start? And I think it does depend on where a person is in their, in their stages of change. You know, is the person aware of the problem? Um, or are they still in denial, and is the person ready to make a plan for change, or is it just the family that wants change? And in any, any event, I think the first thing is, is loving, compassionate conversations. I mean, a lot of times, like you said, this is a rebel conversation. This is a taboo conversation. A lot of times addiction is just being um, swept under the rug. People aren't facing it because we have... Um, socially acceptable addictions, and we have unacceptable addictions. But one way or another, addiction is affecting everyone. And so it's, it's a difficult conversation for people to join in. Just like you said, okay. and I, relate. I didn't grow up saying I was going to work in addiction recovery. You know, I think this job chose me, or God bless you know. But what happens is that families initially, they, they have to be willing to have that conversation. They have to be willing to be vulnerable 
to get honest, to get real, um, to open that heart-centered conversation, to have compassion and empathy with each other, and then you can start to form that strategy for change. But until you're able to get on the same page and talk about this in a loving way and not talk about the addiction in the substance use or the behavioral addiction, because that's, that's the triggering conversation. That's the defense mechanism. That's the, the, the self-soothing or self-medicating behavior that is, is assisting the core problem. So not only do we need to get in this loving and compassionate space, but we need to have a conversation about what's really going on. Why is the person sad or lonely or unmotivated um, or suicidal or traumatized? You know, why is this happening? And what kind of plan or strategy can the, can the family start to assemble that addresses not only the core problems, but also uh, the passions, the goals, that interest, a uh, purpose in life for that individual to help them move forward? Okay, Dean, I'm going to stop you there. I have a question. Because when you talk about the family, many individuals first started getting high or drinking with their family. A lot of times that's where it starts. So they don't even realize that it's a problem because, like you said, people use for different reasons. And at first they made it entertaining. I remember growing up and I used to watch a lot of commercials. And things were so, and I always tell my clients, advertisement. Advertisement is so big. And I remember Billy D. Billy D. Williams was so handsome. And the only thing I can really remember about Billy D. Williams was Lit the Bull, the drinking. No, Coke 45. His was Coke 45. So I remember just those images in my head, but yet for some reason growing up in Compton, I didn't realize that I was truly scared of addiction because it was all around me. And I want to talk a little bit about just the warning signs. Now, like I said, I am a therapist, and when I first started doing drug and alcohol addiction and counseling, basically, I remember one of my clients bought me a book called Addiction and Recovery for Dummies. And I wasn't offended when, I, when they gave me the book because I used to always tell my clients, I am not a recovering addict. But I learned a lot as I was teaching the class because I learned that even though I was not one that wanted to engage in drug and alcohol use for many, many different reasons, and I used to tell my clients, first of all, I eat too much. And if I smoke marijuana, I probably weigh 400 pounds. I said, and then me, I used to like to fight. And I've never seen a drunk win a fight. I said, now with heroin, I can go to sleep whenever I want to, and I'm scared to death of needles. And those that know me know I have my little twicker moments where I run around like a chick with my head cut off like today. So methamphetamine, don't want to mess with it. So but what happened was I realized that part of that was I was at risk. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the warning signs of addiction. One is family history. The attitudes, behaviors, and genetic vulnerabilities that many of us pick up from our families can either render us either to be more or less susceptible to developing an addiction problem. What are some of the things that you see in regards to some of the families you work with in regards to family history of addiction? Well, you know, if we're looking at precursors that make someone susceptible to addiction, this is very important, guys, because not everybody is susceptible to every kind of addiction. It's not the substances themselves that are addicting. The brain is has a pre-existing condition that makes one person susceptible to addiction versus the other. Now, what are those precursors? It all comes down to stress. 
So there's stress that can emerge many times in the family history. Um, first of all, a precursor is addiction already in the home. So you already mentioned that. When you have addiction already in the home, you're setting up the rest of the family members yeah. to develop these similar patterns. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about is, the family history. Let's say, for an example, your mother used drugs, your father used drugs. That's a warning sign that if you start experimenting, you may use. Even if they're sober now, there's a family history. The second mm-hmm. one is your willingness to experiment with risky behavior. Now, again, mm-hmm. these are just some of the warning signs of things that can happen to a person which can lead to a person developing addictive behavior because they're already at risk. Then you got your mental state. If you have problems controlling negative moods like anxiety, depression, and anger, a person or individual is going to be more likely to turn to substances, which is one of the things you indicated when you were talking about individual self-medicating. And then people's choice of drugs. I find that a lot of times with my clients, their choice of drugs has a lot to do with their behavior. Because, I mean, you know, I have an office in Orange County. In Orange County, we see a lot of methamphetamine use. Growing up, I saw a lot of individuals, you know, using crack cocaine. There was more PCP, a lot of marijuana. But individual experiments with a lot of different choices, which also has a lot to do with the risk that they take. Now, that's some of the things that I, I mean, I know you hear it. I know you see it with individuals in regards to when they come to you or you go to them or you help them out with the warning signs. So when you see these warning signs or you share this with the families, are the families very perceptive to that information or do they try to ignore it and say, well, he has a problem and it's not me? Well, you know, we kind of see everything on the spectrum. I mean, some families are very open and receptive and really, truly want to learn about addiction. They're very excited about the idea of family recovery and everyone getting involved and working on themselves and their own goals. And some families are codependent, and there's a lot of areas of denial, and nobody wants to rock the boat, so they're not having these Mm -hmm. conversations. Um, I can say that an individual's recovery is a lot easier when families um, are involved, do want to know, do want to look at themselves, and be a part of, the, you know, the, the larger picture. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have precursors to addiction, and then we have warning signs to addiction. Like I was saying, precursors are going to be stress in your childhood, lack of bonding and attachment, lack of normal brain development, any kind of neglect, trauma, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse can set somebody up to become susceptible to mm-hmm. addiction. And just having fo- uh, poor quality family relationships or uh, poor communication, lots of blaming, again, codependency, these are things that set people up for addiction. Then you have the warning signs that you're talking about. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things we see. You might see your loved one become more withdrawn. They're starting to isolate. They become more reserved. You know, they're really holding or bottling stuff up. Uh, when you confront them, they're saying everything's okay, but you can tell that there's, there's the distance there. Um, other people become very talkative, um, okay. and, you know, they become more involved, more confident, more motivated, and they start to uh, become more productive. And then, of course, you're going to have changes in emotion, mood swings, odd behaviors, changes in habits. Um, if somebody's using opiates or heroin, you're going to notice them nodding off. That's one of the most common signs that somebody is using or relapsing. And you're just in general going to notice just a change in their daily routine, who they're hanging out with, who they're spending their time with, 
changes in appearance or hygiene. And of course, everything that was important to them and that was a priority uh, starts to become, you know, secondary as the addiction. Okay, we're going to be taking role. a break pretty soon. We're going to be taking a break. We have two minutes before our break. If you want to call in with questions, give us a call at 888-346-9141. Today's topic is, again, how to help my loved ones stay sober. Right now, we're giving you a lot of general information in regards to how they got there. And when we come back after the break, we're going to be trying to give you some tips in regards to what the family can do if once they identify that their loved one is in trouble, what they can do to try to help guide them back on the right track is where we're going to be going next. So, like I said, if you want to call in, call at 888-346-9141, and we're going to be trying to help you. Like I said... We want to talk about trying to stay sober, but we also know before we stay sober, one has to get sober. So until then, let's take a break, and we'll be waiting. We'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Do you have complete control over your thoughts and your life? It seems like we do, but there are always outside forces that are wreaking havoc with that control. How do we get our thoughts back on track, so to speak? Listen for help. My thoughts are holding me hostage with Dr. Jeffrey Fannin. When you command the power of thought, you can achieve or have whatever you want. Make the laws of the universe work for you. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Life is a journey which never gets easier. As we go through life, we just handle things better as we get to know ourselves. Listen for the Mental Sherpa by Theta Spring. Host Alexandra Janelli believes that each of us are pre-programmed with all the answers and tools we need to move through any situation life throws at us. It's discovering those tools and answers that will set us on the right path to enjoying and navigating life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Precious Predicaments. To reach Jeanette Abney or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to jabneylmft at gmail.com. Now, back to Precious Predicaments. Thank you. Welcome back to Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney and today's host, Ian. And today we're talking about how to help my loved ones stay sober. And like I said before the break, before we can help someone stay sober, they first have to get sober. And a lot of times for the individuals to want to get sober, it can be a challenge because many times individuals find excuses. They are so much common to their disease of addiction that they're in denial and they're not even aware that that is definitely a problem. Because it's like, it's not a problem for me, so why should I have to stop doing what I like doing? 
I want to read something, and it's called I Am Your Disease. And the author is anonymous, and it says, allow me to introduce myself. I am the disease of addiction. Honey, baffling, and powerful. That's me. I've killed millions, and I am pleased. I love to catch you with the element of surprise, and I love pretending that I'm your friend and your lover. I have given you comfort, have I not? Wasn't I there for you when you were lonely, when you wanted to die? Weren't you there for me? You called me. And I'm going to end it there because it goes on and on and on because a lot of times when I read that sentence, you called me, a lot of times family members want individuals to just stop. Why don't they just stop? Deanna, I want to ask you a question in regards to family members' perception of addiction and wanting their family members to just stop. What can we tell the family members in regards to them just stopping, stop using? Well, I think the first thing to realize is that uh, the addictive behavior is the defense mechanism. It is the safety or security blanket for a person. So when we ask them to give up their security blanket, but we're not addressing the underlying problem, all you're going to get is the person's, um, you know, defensiveness or their defenses going up because that's their solution. At least it's their temporary solution. So the first thing that family needs to realize is that before you can take that whole framework of addiction, because remember, addiction is a mindset, it's a personality, it's a lifestyle, it's a culture. So before they can move beyond this entire framework, they have to build up another framework underneath or at least have a strategy or a plan to start moving into that direction. You can't just take away someone's security blanket and leave them sitting there naked and expect that, that they're going to survive like the rest of us when that is their coping mechanism. So we need to help them find new coping mechanisms before we can try to replace the, the negative or addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, and, you know, I always tell my clients that drug use and addiction is secondary to a primary issue. And one of the things is dealing with that primary issue, and a lot of times, like you said, is taking that blanket away, taking that safety net away, taking away the only coping skills that they know. Now, when we talk about just the individuals and the characteristics of the individual, you know, a lot of times individuals that receive professional help, sometimes just the beginning. Sometimes, you know, I know when we were talking about our conversation before, we were talking about the stages of change. And a person is like, okay, if you take that away from me, what am I going to have? What is it? I don't know what it's like to be sober anymore. I don't know who I am or what I'm going to do with myself. And one of the things is with the stages of change is we go through what's called the pre-contemplation. I'm thinking about it, contemplating it. I'm going to do it. And then once we get to that part where we finish the contemplating it and we get to the changing part, we take action. And then after one takes action, they have to maintain it. Now, when they're trying to maintain it, that's where the family becomes very important with trying to help the loved one stay sober. Because what happens is the individual is going to have to learn how to deal with problems without using drugs or alcohol and without getting stressed out. Because a lot of times, and I heard you say earlier, stress plays a big role in addiction. What are some of the ways that the family can help 
the individual deal with problems without getting stressed out or without wanting to resort back or having a relapse? What, what do you tell your family members? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, the family member wants to get on the same page as their loved one in recovery because the last thing you want to do is create more drama or make it more difficult. I think that some family members have a lot of resent towards the person who's had a a strong drug addiction, and so there's a part of them that thinks that they need to prove themselves before they can trust them and before they can dignify them and connect with them again. And I think family members are often trying to protect themselves emotionally so they're not able to show up for that loved one. So one of the first things, as I spoke of earlier, too, is love, connection, compassion, getting on the same page as your loved one, asking them what they want. People have to have autonomy in their recovery. Uh, One area that, that, like, sometimes the only area that individuals feel a sense of control is in their addiction In the rest of their life, they feel no sense of control. So the only way that they're going to take action and truly move through recovery is if they feel a sense of self-control. They feel like they have a say or a buy-in to their own plan. So through this connected conversation, talking to your loved one about what they want to create, what are their goals, what are their passions, what are their interests, um, what's important to them. So when you're talking about problem-solving, what direction are we moving in? It's not just about mitigating something day by day, but why is this important? The family needs to understand that because if, if the why is just sobriety or just being uh, in a stress-free environment, that'll only last so long. There's got to be a bigger vision um, connected to morals and values and uh, goals that's going to keep that family going strong. And I would say purpose, too, like bringing meaning and purpose into the days with the family. You know, what are they working toward? What are they doing for excitement? What are they doing for fun versus what is the addict in recovery doing to either help them or not help them? Okay. Um, The next thing in regards to also with the stress and trying to deal with the problem is for the other person is realizing that the person owes boundaries and how to separate the problem from other people's problems. A lot of times when an individual that, you know, when they're coming in for help, the family don't realize that boundaries are very, very important. You have to set boundaries. And another thing that's important is for the person that's struggling with addiction, they got to have at least one person that they can be completely honest with. And we're going to go back into that with the honesty part because a lot of times for the family and for the person with the drug and alcohol problem, being honest is one of those things that a lot of people struggle with. I know when I do a lot of my groups, one of my topics is honesty and personal recovery. Because without honesty, recovery is going to be a challenge. Another thing that they have to do is take time to restore one's physical and emotional energy when that person is fatigued. A lot of times, Deanne, what I've seen is by the time the individual decides to get help, sometimes the family is so worn out. They don't know what to do when you talk about that fatigue. So then when they come to their family and say, I want some help, they have either isolated themselves from their family members They've either burned bridges with family member or bridges. They've done so much damage to trying to implement damage control is one of the things that I know myself as a therapist see. I don't know if you see that a lot when you're talking about coaching. 
But let's talk about some of the damage control that you implement when you're working with families to help them to help their loved ones. Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of agreements, I think sobriety contracting is very important. So before a person goes into treatment or when they're coming out, you want to sit down with the family and get really clear on what those expectations are, what those needs are, what those priorities are, and uh, what the boundaries are, as you said, and then clarifying what the consequences will be of those boundaries. Um, So the clearer we are about what the the predicted or unpredicted hardships might be, the more that we can put a plan in place around that. So I think it's about agreements. I think it's about talking about it. And again, it goes back to having a strategy. You know, what are the coping skills? What are the new rituals? What's going to be the conflict, the um, strategy for conflict resolution? Um, you know, maybe the family sits down and has meetings um, regularly every other day or once a week to talk about things, what's coming up. You can also, what I love to do with clients and families is to look at previous times when they went into recovery to get sober and look at what happened last time. Where was the breakdown? Where, where, did, where was the fallout? Because there's a lot of predictable problems or issues in early recovery that a person knows are going to happen. So we might as well sit down and put a plan to it and talk about what is plan A, what is plan B, and how can we work together to mitigate or solve these problems that we know are going to come up. And then also just recognizing that recovery is about, you know, ups and downs and, you know, you're going to have your celebratory moments and you're going to have your work moments and just realizing that this is a process. A person doesn't just get sober and stay sober and it's fine. Getting sober is very much like learning any new skill. There's going to be tests and trials. There's going to be Um, trial and error, there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be slip-ups, lapses, and relapses. So I really think around that strategy, you have have to develop a perseverance and just know that this is going to be a process. And if one thing goes wrong, it doesn't mean that the whole recovery or everything's out the window. It just means that it's a work moment and whoever's involved in that moment needs to step up and do their work in that moment. Okay, one of the things is, I hear what you're saying, and a lot of it is, not only do we have to teach the individual who's dealing or struggling with addiction how to live a life free from the use of drugs and alcohol, a lot of times I'm finding that I also have to educate the family about addiction, what addiction is, because a lot of times family members don't have a clue. Now, at the beginning of the show, you gave some insights and some tips in regards to help individuals understand or recognize when their family member is in trouble, what that looks like, because a lot of times the family members don't even know. They don't know if my kids are hanging out with other people, if they're coming in with bloodshot eyes, you know, what's going on, and all they want, like I said, is a person to stop. So I want to give the listeners some information in regards to how to encourage sobriety. Because even though we talk about recovery as a process, we talk about, I I hear clients say a lot of times, relapse is a part of recovery, and sometimes individuals set themselves up for relapse. But one of the things is staying sober is a lifelong journey. And even though a lot of times individuals or the, the person will say, I want support, Support can come in a lot of different ways. And I always remind my clients that you're not getting sober for your family. You're getting sober for yourself. You have to do it for yourself. 
Because if you do it for your family members, and then what happens is when something happens, you want to show them, but you hurt yourself. So, number one, for the person that's dealing with addiction, remember, it's about you. It's something that you're going to have to work on, and you're going to be the one that's going to be going through this process of healing, and your family is there for the journey to help you. But the one thing is for the family members, I want to give you six suggestions. One of them is we have to learn how to accept the person without judgment. I always tell my family members one of the hardest things to do but the most valuable thing to do is to separate the person from who they are versus what they do. They're still your child. They're still your niece. They're still your nephew. They're still your parents. It's who they are. And versus what they do. A lot of times we focus on what they do so much. That's where the judgment part comes in. That's where our pain comes in as a family member. That's where the criticism, the negativity, all of that stuff comes in. But one of the things is in order to encourage sobriety, we have to be mindful of the things that we say because we want to help and heal and not break and wound. What are some of the things that you see, Deanne, in regards to trying to have them accept the, their family member without judging the family member? So, so are you saying how, how do the families not judge addiction and, and still treat their, their loved one as an equal? What I'm saying is how do they accept their family member or who their family member is and look at the addiction as the behavior? Because a lot yeah. of times family members don't understand. They don't know what to do. So today, the design of the show is to try to help those family members. How can I help this person? What is my role? So how can we teach them to just accept them without judging them? And like I said, one of the things that I do is I try to separate who they are versus what they do. Another yeah. way to encourage sobriety would be create a substance-free environment. Because if you want to encourage someone to change, one of the biggest predictors of long-term recovery is whether, not whether or not they use, but whether or not they're able to live in that type of environment. The thing that I see for loved ones is we can protect the person by surrounding them with more positive things, removing drug paraphernalia, removing things out of our home. One of the biggest struggles that I see with a lot of family is do as I say, not as I do. And one of the reasons mm. why, and when I work with a lot of my clients, and the reason that why they relapse is they go into either a detox, they go into a residential, or they go into some sort of treatment, but they go back to the same environment where people are still drinking, they're still using, because the other person on the family in this field, why do I have to get sober? I'm not the one with the problem. The next thing is listen and actively listen. For some individuals, that person needs somebody to listen to them, to be available to them, even though I always encourage that they basically get a sponsor or attend self-help meetings. But active listening for family members is very important because we might learn something if we listen to the person. Another way to encourage sobriety is encourage healthy eating habits, like cooking or just healthy habits, period, whether it's exercising, just doing positive things that are substance-free 
and, like I said, joining a support group, and we have to be patient. Now, we're going to be taking a break pretty soon, but when I talk about being patient, a lot of times family members want that quick fix. We want to know, what can you do to fix them? When are they going to change? It's hard for family members to be patient, but we also have to remember as a family member that recovery is a long and complicated process. And people will make mistakes along the way in regards to recovery. So it's very important to let them know that we're still their family or we're still their friends, and we will support them when they mess up. However, we're not going to enable them. We're not going to be codependent. And we're going to draw the line in the sand with our boundaries. So we're going to be taking a break pretty soon. And, again, if you want to call in, you can give us a call at 888-346-9141. And I also want to say I had quite a few people sending some emails yesterday. And with the emails, they basically shared some tips on what they felt was effective with individuals in regards to how to help their loved ones stay sober. And when we come back on the air, I'm going to read some of the information that they shared. So let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you happy in your life, or are you just settling? It's time to speak out, take control of your existence, and let your life speak. Bart Queen is the host of A Hero's Journey. His personal goal is to help you find your voice, use that voice, and live the life that you deserve to live. Do more, be more, and give more. Tune in to A Hero's Journey on the Voice America Empowerment Channel, live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You owe it to yourself to tune in and make your voice count. Do you feel alone trying to conquer life's challenges? Do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, host April Joy Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to discover the powerful you. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you get empowered holistically every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Precious Predicaments. To reach Jeanette Abney or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to jabneylmft at gmail.com. Now, back to Precious Predicaments. Welcome back to Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney and Deanne. Again, today's topic is how to help your loved ones stay sober. I told some of my listeners or individuals that sent me emails or commented on my Facebook that I would read some of their comments that they sent me yesterday in regards to some of the things that they either received or may have happened to them. I'm not sure if they have actually been in treatment or anything, and I indicated I would keep their name anonymous, but one of them wrote, And it says, 
One of the things you can do is pray and let them fall on their face until all they have left is whatever God is and they pray to. And they also have to hope to live long enough to get it. This is what I was told, not by letting them fall. I feel, I feel for them, but by far worse things that could ever happen to me. I know that I'm just saying this, but it's a heartbreaking truth. A lot of times when we talk about hitting rock bottom, and I want to say to this individual, rock bottom is different for everyone. Another person sent me a message, and it says, you can only help if they admit that they have a problem and want help. If they think that they don't have a problem, then offering them suggestions will only push that person away. And what do you think about that in regards to they got to want help and if you offer them help, whatever, it, it may push them away? Dan, what do you well, think? I think, that, I, I, I think that everybody, <clears throat> to some degree, wants help. It just depends on how you're initiating the conversation. Again, if you're talking about addiction and wanting to take something away from them that it's a perceived solution or temporary fix, you're not going to get very far with them. But if you approach them and you talk about, you know, the sadness that they're experiencing or the lack of motivation for life that they're experiencing, or you come to them and you talk about an invitation um, to grow and learn about themselves, you know, whether in a trade or whether it's personal development or career, you know, this is, I think, one way you can entice them. And something else I wanted to share that you were speaking on earlier, you were talking about truly listening to the person and, and hearing what it is that they need. This is a very prime thing is, is giving the person a voice back. Through addiction, they've lost their voice, they've lost their confidence, they've lost their esteem, and nobody seems to listen to them anymore. The, their voice has been discredited. Maybe they have been lying, maybe they have been manipulating, but that's pretty much all around the addictive behavior specifically. So it's going back to the person's true self. And when you look at them, not looking at them as an addict or somebody who's been causing problems, uh, disrupting the family, but looking at them as an individual, looking at them as a person with dignity, as an equal, somebody who's kind of trapped inside of their body and stuck. And you can entice this, this change, this, this desire for recovery by assessing what it is that they truly want. If you can find okay. their drivers, if you can find those things that, that they will change for, that's where you want to start the conversation. Okay. If you come to them and talk to them about... Dan, we're going back to the conversation with them. Okay, so now I'm going to read another one. Another person wrote, and they said, in regards to helping a family member or how to help my loved one stay sober, they said, Never give up on a positive person you know in that person. It's the condition that the person is in that you must not be involved. It's best that one knows that God is reconstructing and that he is the controlling factor. God allows us to learn from our errors, and God is truly the only truly has the positive outcome. It's all in God's time, and God does all things for everyone's good. So some of the things that I want to say, I want to thank the individuals that sent me these either text messages or Facebook messages in regards to some of the comments that they made. And a lot of times we don't want to give up on our loved one, and sometimes we don't know what to do. And I'm going to share. I have a son, 
And my son, I tried to explain to him in regards to drinking and that he was at risk of being an alcoholic. And I remember growing up, well, not really growing up, I was an adult. One of the things that really upset me with my mother was my son was about two years old, and I walked in, and I saw my mother giving my son um, a cup of chemistry. And I was furious. I was so mad. And at that time, I didn't see any problem. But I knew my son was at risk of addiction because his father was an alcoholic, my mother was an alcoholic, drugs and alcohol was all in my family. Then when my son turned 16, I remember my father was at his birthday party, and my father and I got into an argument because I watched my father give my son two 40 ounces of Old English 800. And I'm like, why are they doing it? Then when my son became an alcoholic, they wanted to blame it on me. They was like, okay, now what you going to do? But the problem was, no matter what I did, I could not stop him from drinking. I didn't have alcohol in my home, but he would always find it. And the one thing I noticed was my son would try to be like, pretend like he was sober whenever he was around me, because he didn't want me to see him intoxicated. He would run, he would hide from up under, uh, under cars. One time, I'll never forget, I got a call in where I was told to come identify my son's body, and I thought he was dead. My son had went to the edge of the pier and jumped in the ocean. He couldn't even swim. Yeah. And he was drunk. So here I am, preparing myself, thinking I was going to bury my son, and yet I pull up, and I'm looking at, didn't even know he was in the vehicle. So I'm waiting on them to unzip the bag, and I'm going to peek at him, and they're going to zip it back up. He's sitting in the back of a police SUV with nothing on but a pair of underwear, where he was so drunk. He just jumped in the ocean, but then lied and said he was fishing for lobsters and fell over in the ocean and took his clothes off after he was going down. And I mean, as a family member, I was just, I didn't know what to do. I did not know what to do. That young man was driving me crazy. Then another incident, I get a call from my mother, and it ended up where he was so drunk, he left the home, came back to the home, got hooked on the gate, and my mother called the police and said, somebody may shot my son and grandson and hung him on the fence. And about three hours later, and it was raining. He's waking up, doing like the Matrix. And my son has never been in rehab, never wanted to go to rehab, always thought he could stop on his own, but it was a problem. So what would you say to some parents that deal with that on a day-to-day basis where their child don't want treatment? Because what I did, I isolated myself. I turned him over to to the Lord, and I said, I'm done. I'm not going to let him kill me. So what do you do, or what would you say to family members in situations like that? Well, you know, this is uh, unfortunately the case with a lot of families. You know, you have the addicted loved one who feels entitled uh, for their family's support. They're not taking responsibility for their addiction. They're not carrying the weight of their problem because the family's cleaning up a lot of the pieces. So, yes, when you confront Mm -hmm. them with addiction... It's like, I, I, what do you mean? I don't have a problem or I'm doing fine or uh-huh. just thinking of all, I'll turn things around. I got this. So I think, you know, there comes a time where you have to have what I call heart to heart. Some people uh-huh. are, are a little bit more of the intervention style with tough love. But you do have to sit down and explain to the person, you are influencing the family system and here's how you're doing it. And you have to speak to the facts. You can't speak to the assumptions. You've got to look at the observable behavior that your loved one is 
creating within the family system or within society, identify all those consequences, and then you have to set your boundaries, as we said earlier. Mm -hmm. So here's what I see you doing. Now, as I said, it's important to not just talk about the addictive behavior, but to talk about what is the addictive behavior actually Mm -hmm. interrupting. And then you say, here's all the things that are happening. You, and this is where you give them autonomy again, you give, you put it into their boat. You can use drugs and you can use substances if you want. You have that right. However, as your family, we don't want to go on this journey with you. We cannot have these interruptions in our life. So here's our new boundaries. And if you want to stay within this family system and receive these particular supports, maybe that's financial support, housing support, uh, maybe that's even relational support and being next to the person then I'm going to need you to take responsibility and follow through with getting some kind of help. So I mm-hmm. think with your question, when a person is in denial and a person refuses to take responsibility, this is when you have to leverage and, and use whatever leverage you have. A lot of families do have monetary leverage. A lot of them are housing these individuals or cleaning up their messes. And what you do, Jeanette, is you, you start to put the weight of addiction back on their shoulders. Because when the family's carrying the weight of addiction and the... One of the things I want to say is when you talk about enabling and codependency, and one Mm -hmm. of the things I was like, I refuse to enable, I refuse to be codependent because I saw it with my uncles, I saw it with my cousins, I saw it, and when it was in my home, I was like, oh, no, you're not. I'm not dealing with this. And one of the things is even talking about it with my son. I put him there. I talked to him. I did all of that. But it wasn't doing me any good. And I noticed that it started spreading. And one of the things I want to share, because I remember also I saw it when I, was with my, when I was a teenager. I remember one time my uncle was so high, he stole the neighbor's dog and put it in our backyard. And I think I was like 15 years old. And I called my grandmother. And my grandmother was like, when she got there, was like, you call the dogs on me. You call the dogs on me. It was funny, but it was sad. And I have family members like with my uncle, and I get so frustrated when you're talking about addiction. And I didn't know what to do. And with my family, but then I noticed like in the neighborhood, I would, I would traumatize people, terrorize people, because I was trying to take a different approach in regard to support, because we know support can come in a lot of different ways. And one of the things, too, that I want to say is financial support, a lot of times, is one of the worst things you can do. Because giving a person money, not going to get them clean. Sometimes that helps them get high. But one of the things I wanted to say is, I remember a person told me, Jeanette, you are allowing your son to stay drunk. And I couldn't understand why. I said, I don't give him money. I don't get drunk with him. I don't buy him alcohol. He told me, as long as you are providing a roof over his head and you're not making him be responsible by paying rent and teaching him to be held accountable, he's going to stay an alcoholic. And I learned that that was so true. Now, we have four minutes before we close, and, you know, a lot of people probably missed out on calling in because they could have shared some things in regards to or ask some questions in regards to what they can do. But I want to say, and I want to close with, one of the things that we have to do as a family is let's reduce family friction and provide social support. Because even the things that I shared, even about my son, about my family members, there's a high level of conflict in close family. And with this high level of conflict, 
A lot of times we have to reduce the tension by being supportive, by developing communication skills, and that is one way that we can reduce and minimize the tension. We have to learn to be flexible and resourceful in face of the problem. We have to let one another know how much we care. And just because I care doesn't mean that I'm going to let you basically manipulate me. I'm not going to let you control me. And we have to spend positive time together that is rewarding for everyone. Because a lot of times what happens is the person that's viewed as the identified person or the person with the addiction, a lot of times there's a lot of shaming and blaming and guilt that they already feel. So we don't need the family members to add more to it. I want to say we have to encourage participation in support groups. We have AA meetings for the individuals. We have um, Al-Anon, Al-Ateen. So there's a lot of support groups that we can use. And we want to help the loved ones by creating a sober peer network. And with a sober peer network, even though we know that recovery means a major lifestyle change for your loved one, that also includes choosing friends and friends that are sober. And by that, in achieving and maintaining total abstinence means spending less time with peers that use drugs or alcohol and more time with people who support sobriety because that can help. And you help support your loved one by encouraging them to, like I said, associate with the sober individual. And another thing we can do as a family in regards to how to help our loved ones stay sober, we have to know the signs of relapse. Because a lot of times the family members don't understand relapse, and we also have to understand a co-occurring disorder, meaning that the person has more than one disorder because sometimes there's mental health issues in addition to drug and alcohol issues. So we have to treat the mental health problem along with the substance abuse problem because it's two separate issues. Now, we have one minute left. And in closing, I want to say thank you for listening to Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney and Deanne. And if you want help, you can either look us up, give us a call. Like I said, it sounds like her, her individual, her facility offers coaching for individuals and families. I am the owner of the Center for the Treatment of Addiction located in Orange County. And I also have J.A. Precious located in Oceanside. I have Dr. Lisa Romaine also works in this field. We have New Beginnings, New Hope. We have New Beginning Fellowship located in Fountain Valley in Ocean in Orange County. And tune in next week as we're going to be talking about defining your role as a woman with special guest Talisha Berry of Courageous Woman Magazine. And until then, remember, you got this. And again, thanks for listening to Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney. Please join us again for another program next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until then, have an easy and relaxing week. You've got this.